They told me I use my mouth good. So I started a podcast. It's been a little while, but I'm glad that someone, maybe one person, stuck around to listen to this. Do you ever record a whole podcast episode, think that it got deleted, and then you find it, and you listen to it, and you're just like, meh, I don't love it, so you just delete the whole thing and start over? That's what this podcast is. So I had recorded one a couple weeks ago, and it was really ranty and ravey, which there's nothing wrong with that. But I just wasn't feeling it when I listened to it again. So I decided to just get rid of it and start over from scratch. Plus, I, I want to do, do something a little bit funner for this episode. Um, I have been busy the past few weeks, too. This is not... I, my goal was to do this every other week or like maybe once a month or something and have some kind of schedule with it. But obviously, that's not happening. So this is going to be one of those podcasts. It's like a little secret you know, special treat for you. I'm just going to throw it out there when I feel like making it. And maybe if a schedule comes of that, that's cool. But it's you're just going to have to keep an eye out. And I've been slutting around on other podcasts. Uh, I've been having a great time. I actually visited Boston and Manchester, New Hampshire recently. Saw two of my very good friends, Stephanie Murphy and Brian Sovereign. And I actually appeared on two different Sovereign Tech episodes doing Q&A sessions, with, one with uh, just Brian and also one with Stephanie, which you should definitely check out Sovereign Tech if you're interested in really sharp tech talk stuff that's like way above my head but the the episode I was on uh, with just Brian kind of went into a bunch of philosophy and weird sh- mostly shit talking as I do but yeah check it out uh, and they were patreon only episodes so you can find those on Brian's Brian's patreon so I definitely recommend you kind of check that out so like I said the last episode was real ranty and real negative and I guess I could have gone through and made it sound really nice and just kind of found all the good sound bites but I just scrapped the whole thing and that's kind of a thing I do if I don't really even if I spend a lot of time on something if I don't completely love it I may not go through the work of going through and editing it and everything I just maybe like you know what 
and totally scrap it and start over. So there's been so much negativity in the news and stuff lately, and I do have a more serious article that I'm going to bring up, but I'm going to stay away from news stuff for this episode because it's just bumming me out and I just don't feel like dealing with it. So I want to start on a high note and I hope you find this story as inspiring as I do. I'm not going to do the traditional, I mean, I have something positive at the end too, but I want to start on a positive note uh, with this article from The Guardian that I came across that I think was just really really amazing and I hope you find it that it was amazing too. The title of it is I Refuse to Be Like Them. Why the Man Shot While Protesting Milo Yiannopoulos Does Not Want Revenge. And the subtitle is On Inauguration Night, Josh Dukes was shot during a speech by the right-wing provocateur at the University of Washington, but now he's seeking reconciliation. And this is an article by Julia Carey Wong for The Guardian. And it starts off with a quote, I was the first protester shot under the Trump administration, said Josh Dukes, a 34-year-old computer security engineer on a recent afternoon in a Seattle coffee shop. Hopefully, I'm the last. Tall and lanky with a nose ring, black leather jacket, tattoos, and combat boots that offer a clue to his political philosophy, anarchism, Dukes, who also goes by the handle Hex, is conscious of his role as the embodiment of the violent political polarization that has marked the onset of the Trump era. And I'm seeing a lot of commentary about this administration from my friends all across various political spectrums and who the real threats are and stuff like that. And I really think this guy's story nailed some things that are going right and some things that are going way wrong. And so it goes on to describe what was happening. On the night of Trump's inauguration, Dukes traveled to Red Square, a plaza on the University of Washington Seattle campus, to protest against a speech by the right-wing provocateur Milo Yiannopoulos. Unlike some of his fellow anti-fascists, Duke made no effort to disguise himself. While protesters in blackface masks squared off against Trump supporters in red Make America Great Again hats, Duke said that he attempted to only peacefully de-escalate conflict. Then he was shot. The bullet ripped through his abdomen and exited his back. Anarchist street medics raced to apply pressure to the wound. An ambulance arrived and rushed him to the hospital. Two months later, Duke still bears an oozing wound and a long, angry surgical scar. He's lost his gallbladder and half his colon. His liver was severely damaged, his diaphragm pierced. He spent the first month of the Trump presidency in the hospital, undergoing numerous surgeries, fighting off an infection, and high on pain medication that, he said, made the political upheaval of policies like the travel ban, quote, a lot easier to deal with. Dude, I know that's right. I wish I was high for the first month of the Trump presidency, too. Jesus. (laughs) So... So he, he kind of goes on, and, and this is a good quote from him. Me getting shot as a manifestation of Trump's and Milo's violent ideology, he says. He hopes to offer a path to stopping the violence and de-escalating the conflict. He and his partner Sasha, who uses gender-neutral pronouns and asked not to be identified with the last name out of fear of harassment, are requesting that the shooter not be sent to prison, but instead join them in a restorative justice process. And this is what I found beautiful. I think most people who get shot by someone, the first thing they would 
do, I mean, what would be to get the police involved and sue the person, uh, you know, if they survived, obviously sued for damages and used the state against the person. But this guy is so committed to his beliefs that he's not going to do that and he's wanting to resolve this privately and, and resolve it through restitution, which I've been a critic of the prison system and the justice system for forever now, almost as long as I, you know, started finding out what was going on uh, back when I was probably in like high school or so. And a lot of people have a lot of different alternatives for that. And I've dealt with issues privately myself. I've kind of told the story before on other podcasts where I had to de-escalate a situation with my neighbor who was a, a drug addict. Uh, she was addicted to meth and it was just a very scary situation. Um, and I chose not to get the police involved with that situation. And I've been in a lot of other situations in my life where I could have gotten the police involved and I chose not to. Turns out, if you try talking to your neighbors and solving things like adults, um, you know, you can have pretty good outcomes sometimes. Um, you know, the outcome in my, my situation with my neighbor maybe wasn't ideal. She still ended up stealing a bunch of my water by hooking up a hose to it. It's a whole long thing. But, um, you know, I still consider that better than a more violent alternative. I definitely wouldn't want to get anyone hurt. And I've also lived in a lot of neighborhoods where, hey, you know, it wouldn't matter if you called the cops. They're not going to come. They're going to take their sweet-ass time if they do. They're not there to help you. And I think this man understands that. And he also realizes that the violence of the state is something that people on all sides of the political spectrum use against each other. And he's trying to break through that. And I think that's pretty admirable. And so he's been doing this a while. He's, um, he's been an activist. Uh, he grew up in rural northern California in Oregon. Uh, he saw the ravages of meth addiction and racism on small town communities. When an acquaintance asked him if he was down with AB, then explained that the acronym stood for Aryan Brotherhood, Dukes decided to get a crossed out swastika tattooed on his arm, permanently identifying himself as an anti-fascist. I'm not going to be mistaken for that, he said. And this is interesting. I really like this section. In conversation, Duke combines his leftist political philosophy with the hyperlogical reasoning that allows him to excel as a computer security expert. He references games theory as proof of the superiority of anarchism, cites Slovenian philosopher Slavoj Zizek in questioning whether a reporter can ever truly get to know him. When he was shot, he went through a mental version of threat modeling, analyzing his physical condition based on the available data. I'm not dead right now, so I haven't been shot in the heart, he recalls thinking. And this is fascinating. It kind of goes into the lives of the people, the other couple that were on the other side of this violence, Mark and Elizabeth Hokana. And they turned themselves into police after the shooting. And at first it was believed that Mark did the shooting. Um, he had written Facebook messages to Milo and, um, you know, he was ready to, he had posted about going out there and, you know, kind of stirring things up. And it turns out that his wife actually did the shooting and she was claiming self-defense. And in protests like this, it's really hard to determine what is actually self-defense and who's going there for a fight. I mean, honestly, a lot of the rhetoric 
on all sides I've seen of these riots are people looking for a fight. The person who was shot, though, was not. You know, according to several people who know him, this guy, for all intents and purposes, he seems like a totally decent guy. And actually, uh, so they were saying it was in self-defense, and the self-defense claim has gained some steam in the media. And this is also from the article. A local TV station reported that emergency medical responders had found brass knuckles in Duke's pocket based on a readout of the EMS radio dispatch. And in parentheses, Dukes finds this allegation both amusing and infuriating. Within a few minutes of meeting a reporter, he eagerly drew the brass knuckles out of his pocket, revealing what was actually a plastic finger strengthener used by guitarists. And there's a picture of this, and I've seen these before. I grew up around musicians. This is obviously just a tool that you're using to strengthen your fingers. And his uh, partner, Sasha, says... They're a married couple. I assume they love each other. I assume they know what it feels like when someone you love is threatened. There's got to be some humanity somewhere. And I really feel like that is the key to this whole piece and kind of the greater dialogue that people can be having with each other on opposing sides of the political spectrum. There's so much disinformation and... I mean, really fake news, for lack of a better term, <laughs> going on that it's it can be hard to see the humanity in people. And election years are always my least favorite years because they pit everyone against each other and they dehumanize everyone. And just the absolute worst comes out, this kind of rank tribalism that, I mean, it's horrible. Family members, you know, lash out at each other long-term friends sometimes aren't friends anymore I I found myself having to take several breaks and and kind of having to you know break off acquaintance like relationships with people I didn't lose any of I would say any of my long-term friends over political stuff but it's always eye-opening and obviously these people are very torn up about this Sasha and Dukes and Sasha is talking about how they dehumanized her partner you know, and she's totally torn up and in tears. She's saying, I can't unsee those images. I want to share that burden. The people who did that need to see that. I want to sit down with them and show them the photographs. I really just want to know why. And um, Dukes goes on to say, shooting me or someone else cuts off all the things I could do with my life, my job, my relationships. Prison does something similar. And this is why he's wanting to pursue restorative justice with this other couple you know sit down work out some kind of agreement some kind of uh, I'm sure it would include compensation um, or something like that obviously high medical bills involved and stuff like that and he he doesn't want these people to be thrown in jail he doesn't want them to have their lives disrupted or taken from them the way that his life was almost taken from him unfortunately As it stands, their offer of restorative justice has been rejected. Basically, the state is saying, we have to pursue this case against them. You know, this is now a criminal case, so the state is going to pursue it. And this also just goes to show, even if you did want to resolve something privately, you know, among each other, even something as serious as a shooting where someone lost his life, you're legally not even allowed to do that. You are barred from even taking that option so 
there's definitely a long road ahead of us in regards to reforming or completely turning over the justice system. But I really, I'm really glad that this piece was written. I'm really glad that it reached such a prominent publication because I think more people need to hear about these ideas and hear about it from the people advocating it in such a compassionate way. I'll leave you with the last things Dukes says in this article. So he's talking about Elizabeth Hokana. She's going into a system that will eat her alive, and that's awful. It's hard to wish that on anyone. Right now, we're continually escalating violence. Maybe if we can have a larger conversation, maybe we can turn this thing around. We have to start seeing each other as people and talk about how other people are people. I refuse not to recognize these people as people because I refuse to be like them. And that's how the article ends. And I really think it's just a beautiful piece and it really speaks to perseverance and endurance and compassion for someone who tried to kill you. It doesn't really get more compassionate than that. Um, I used to carry a firearm for years, for about 40 years. And I, I guess... I guess I felt safe. I never felt that I was any in, in any dangerous situations where I would have needed to use it. But the more I thought about it, and of course I would never put myself in those situations, the last thing I would want to do would be using something like that. Even though I knew how to, and I knew how to pretty well, um, I had taken classes and things like that, I didn't want to be responsible for taking another life, even if they were trying to hurt me, especially if it was something over something like theft. Um, I, I see a lot of people being really like kind of bloodthirsty about like, well, if someone tries to steal my wallet or steal my purse or steal something from my store, then I'm going to gun them down. And like, I feel like that's such a petty thing to shoot someone over. I mean, obviously there are other things that you would want to defend yourself against, maybe with lethal force. But it's very hard for me to even want to do that in any kind of way. So I completely stopped carrying, even though I have the training. I mean, I know my way around a firearm, that's for sure. But it's not something I'm interested in doing anymore. So maybe we can have a conversation. Maybe this is something that, you know, can actually be productive. So good on you, Dukes. I'm, I'm really glad he survived that and he has that kind of mentality and approach and it hasn't made him bitter too. I think it'd be very easy to say, oh, well, these people are just ignorant, you know, Trump supporters and they were out to kill me and, you know, screw them. I hope the system eats them alive. Like it's very easy to want that kind of vengeance. It's much harder to say, no, this needs to be a conversation and I want to make this right nonviolently without the force of the state behind it. That is beautiful. So there's no real segue to this. I'm going to kind of, I, I, that was positive. It was a little sad, but it was also, I think, a little bit positive too. I, I think I'm going to move to maybe a slightly more serious subject. I did cover this article in the last podcast that I deleted, but I wanted to cover it again because and I, I wouldn't say that I don't want to I want to be careful with this article because I'm not trying to say it's some kind of general trend or something that like I've observed a lot of. 
Um, I have heard more so from my straight female friends about this phenomenon, you know, and I've seen a little bit of it. I, I understand what the author's talking about. I don't know how widespread it is, but this is kind of an interesting article, and it's a little bit older. It is from uh, a couple months ago, but it's on Fusion, and the title is Meet the Woke Misogynist by Nona willis Aronowitz. This is interesting. This talks about the author's experience of trying to go on a date. Uh, she found a date, um, and it, things went all right, and uh, the guy seemed pretty nice. She, she wasn't sure if she was attracted to him, but they had a good time. Um, you know, she says this of the guy, the guy she named him Bob. She goes, Bob seemed adventurous, smart, fun, and horny. He told me he was an erotic massage therapist working with sexual trauma victims and teaching them how to orgasm again, which I kind of laughed at that. Like, okay, so I'm not trying to like, okay, I'm not going to even lie. Like when I first read that line, I kind of rolled my eyes a little bit because it just sounds that weird line between like, you don't want to be an asshole. You don't want to dismiss this guy outright. But like me, I'm pretty skeptical. Part of me is like thinking, all right, my dude, that sounds like some bullshit. Oh, okay, really? Which, okay, I don't doubt that these people exist and feel free to send me hate mail for like bashing this dude or whatever. That's, that's a lot, okay? That's a lot and like highly specific. So you have like three different layers, erotic massage therapist, working with sexual trauma victims, and teaching them how to orgasm again, which I don't know, that kind of sounds like how they used to treat hysteria in women in the olden days, where it was basically women were, were depressed because they weren't, maybe they weren't getting pleasured enough or whatever. So <laughs> there were doctors back in the day who would give women orgasms like they would go in and the doc would you know give them an orgasm and uh they would feel much better their hysteria was was cured which hysteria could have been anything from you're a little bit annoyed because your husband is you know an asshole or you know you're being a little bitchy or opinionated or you know whatever the fuck it was um so we'll go on he touched my leg almost immediately, then said, let me know if this is too much. After an hour or two, I decided we would have a light hookup to see if there was any physical spark. I went back to his place around the corner from the bar after clearly announcing my boundaries. Just a makeout, I insisted. He said that was fine. After a few minutes in his bedroom, it was clear it was not fine. We started kissing and I felt mildly turned on. Then I didn't. I told Bob I had to go, but he pressed. Quietly, I said, stop. He pressed more. Then I said, no, really, stop. When I faced away from him to jiggle my bra back in place, he came up behind me and tried yet again. At one point, he pushed me onto his bed and said, wait a minute, I still haven't made you come. Eventually, I was firm. I really have to go and made my way to the door, although I kissed him goodnight rather than leaving in a huff. Next time, I assured him. As soon as I was on the street, I cried confused tears, surprised at myself for letting my guard down so quickly, and then not even acting angry. Did that scenario really just happen between two Brooklyn feminists? And for a little more context, in the first paragraph, he did say that he was boasting that he was a feminist. And this has become kind of 
you know, maybe a bit of a stereotype. Like SNL did a video where this, you know, a woman goes into a bar and she's going to meet her friend there. And these guys, like one after another, go up to her and they're like, hey, you know, I'm a feminist. It's like, oh, man, you must have to deal with so much crap from guys. Like, oh, guys are the worst. And they start hitting on her. And then, like, they ask if she wants to fuck. And she's pretty much like, oh, no thanks. And they immediately start calling her a bitch. Um, <laughs> so this is kind of kind of interesting. Um, so she goes on to say, Tinder Bob is a cinematic example of an infuriating phenomenon, the woke misogynist. The woke misogynist is a guy who talks a big game about gender equality and consent, uses vocabulary like triggering without rolling his eyes, wears a pussy hat to the woman's march, prefers to fuck feminists, and may freely call himself one, too, then turns around and harasses you, assaults you, or belittles you. Perhaps his behavior throws you off because unlike the wimpster or the ESO misogynist of the aughts, he's confident in himself and his pro-woman bona fides. So this is kind of like there there are creepers who will violate your boundaries and just you know hover and just maybe they're over the top with like sexual innuendo and stuff these guys are not that this is a very specific type of appearing enlightened kind of oh yeah i'm a feminist blah 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 but he still has issues with women i mean i i've encountered a couple people kind of like this um Again, as soon if someone were if I were on a date and they were like, "Oh, I'm an erotic massage therapist and I cure PTSD victims by giving them orgasms," my bullshit my bullshit alarm would be going so hard. I would be like, "All right, dude. All right, sure you are." Um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, these are these are a little more insidious because they'll say all the right things. They'll, they might use all the right rhetoric, and they can be very deceiving. And in a way, they've kind of exploited a form of sex-positive feminism, which encourages women to, you know, embrace their, the sexual side of themselves and be liberated by that, which there's nothing wrong with that. I would say I'm more of a sex-positive feminist um, than sex-negative, but it is kind of something that some people, mostly dudes, have exploited. And she kind of goes on, this is a good way to um, kind of distinguish it. The pattern was hypocritical in a grander sense in that someone purporting to be for human rights shouldn't go around abusing or dismissing women. But unlike the woke misogynist, these men's bigotry was unflinching, their hostility blatant. Woody Allen and Stokely Carmichael and Norman Mailer may have been pillars of the left, but they certainly never claimed to be feminists. And so this is kind of talking about some of the leaders in the anti-war movement and civil rights movements in the 60s, um, they weren't really big on women's liberation. Uh, there was a lot of sexism in these movements, and women were dismissed a lot of the times. And this is, I mean, this does go to show, like, the left has a huge problem with misogyny and still does. Um, just because a guy claims to be a leftist or progressive or feminist doesn't mean that they really necessarily always support women's rights. Um, unfortunately, I don't predominantly date straight men. You know, I can be attracted to a wide variety of people. So, I, I mean, actively, right now, I'm just I'm mostly trying to avoid dating anyone. <laughs> so, but I've heard about this a lot. And this is a good article kind of uh, bringing it up. 
yeah, how much of a problem is it? I'm not really sure, but it's something to maybe keep an eye out for if you're a, you know, if you're wanting to date straight men, um, basically, or, you know, or maybe there, maybe there are some bi guys who would also have this kind of issue, um, and she kind of goes on to say, oh, you know, she's has a lot of friends who have kind of said the same thing, and another thing, another point she brings up that I want to point out is one thing that is kind of a giveaway with people on the left is when they start criticizing maybe women, like female conservatives, and they start criticizing her in super sexist ways. Um, the example she used was there was this outspoken woman's rights advocate who went out of his way to call Kelly Kellyanne Conway ugly, which, <laughs> I mean, like, I you can make fun of Kellyanne Conway all day. Uh, I think the better approach there is just go with how ridiculous she kind of is um you know attacking someone for their physical appearance I don't know I'm not super big on it I'm not saying it's beneath me <laughs> like I, I've done it before um but you know there there are signs there are warning signs you know and they are sneakier and it still makes you feel really shitty if it happens to you so people keep an eye out for these for these uh dudes um there's still a lot of misogyny in the culture and in the way that people interact with each other, yeah, and, and I mean it can and it, it can get more serious too. Um, some of these people are really well spoken. Some of them, th- these they're not going to be as overtly misogynistic. You know, they're not going to be grabbing you by the pussy. Be smart, watch out, and don't be afraid to call people on their shit. You know, if some guy like <laughs> is going on and on about how he's some, you know erotic massage therapist that it would be really hard for me to not make fun of him a little bit you know give him a little bit of shit for it so you can counter it by being aware and not being afraid to call someone on their shit too and take taking time to get to know someone maybe the guy okay so what he did afterwards was obviously shitty um but like you know maybe there are totally decent erotic massage therapists out there I'm not going to discount that there could be, so, <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. Watch out for red flags. I want to move on. Uh, something that I talk about a lot, so I'm from Florida, and as I always say, everything you hear about Florida is true. So we're going to move on to one of my favorite segments, which is, you know, what's happening in Florida, like adventures of Florida people. Woo! So... <laughs> I'm just going to read, okay, I have a longer kind of thing to read, but I'm, I want to read some of these headlines. I'm just going to read the hi- headlines. I'm not going to go into them. Use your imagination, people. So, okay, I'm getting these from Reddit on the subreddit Florida Man. And again, this I love these. Okay, so first off, Florida woman stabs boyfriend after he farts on her. Florida man has dog trainer's license revoked after Greyhound's test positive for cocaine. Drunken Florida man pulls himself over, asks to be arrested. Florida man tries to set convenience store on fire to, quote, run the Arabs out of our country, sheriff says. That's, that's nice, dude. Florida dude. This one I love. This actually happened in Pasco County, which is where I'm at. Florida man dances around in his boxer shorts, rams deputy's car, gets tased, and says, quote, nuclear bombs are coming. I don't know. He could be right. 
Florida woman hits herself with fallen sprinkler for phony workers' comp claim. Jeez. Ah, uh, okay. Trying to find funny ones. There's a lot of domestic violence ones. Those are not that funny. Well, this is kind of a dick move. Florida man exposes himself to woman after purse snatching. Way to really lay it on, dude. Like, you already took her purse? Jeez. <laughs> this is great. Florida man steals 200 pairs of panties. Florida woman says demons made her do it. I really like this one. Florida man scooter driver uses cell phone as headlight is stopped. Dude, come on. I used to have a scooter. I was I was Florida woman on a scooter, but I never used my cell phone as a headlight. Not that I wouldn't. Those things are super bright. Like, if I had to. Like, if I thought I could get away with it. Okay, that's the Florida woman in me talking. If I thought I could get away with it, maybe I would. But I wouldn't go far, okay? <laughs> so, and this this thread brought me into this article called the six florida man factions and this is from a florida native and he says just about everyone i meet here can be classified into just six neat categories and i read through these and it's kind of true so there's the seasonal these are people that come and go with the weather that includes spring breakers canadians new englanders the british and asian tourists who give us our state income these people usually stick to the coastal regions unless they travel to Disney or some shit. As soon as it gets too hot or their vacation is over, it's back to wherever they came from. That's true. A lot of tourism. Then there's the elderly. These people make up a large percentage of our population with most either living in retirement communities or homes and the rest living in wealthy or junky houses. <laughs> They're spread pretty evenly everywhere, but they do seem to avoid the larger cities to some extent. Yeah, you're not going to see a lot of olds in Miami. You're just not. Um, but there are quite a bit down here. Um, they go on. The I'm a wholesome, God-fearing American and I love country music. These people mostly inhabit the northern bits of Florida and occupy most of the farms. In and out of the Gainesville areas where I've noticed a vast congregation of these species, they either typically go to church regularly and or enjoy country music to a disgusting degree. And not just country music, but like it's more like southern rock. This is my own experience. Like and I was I was raised on this music, you know, like they you know, it's not just country. Like a lot of Jimmy Buffett stuff like that you know like just really like kind of like it's it's playing on like your soft rock stations it's not quite oldies it's like like southern rock soft rock stuff like that <laughs> and god they are the worst drivers too i just have to say like they shouldn't be on the roads i mean like i don't, I don't want to be like oh there needs to be a law or something but like oh my god it's dangerous down here driving Okay, moving on. The next Florida person type is the country clubber. These folks include people belonging to any of the many country clubs, yacht clubs, and general upper-class people. This person lived in Melbourne, and his town is running wild with engineers because of local institutions, and they all go to the same yacht club or the other local one. They generally talk about capitalism and complain about their significant others while drinking or playing golf. I actually, my day job, uh, I see a lot of these people at... Um, and that is actually kind of true. Big about the golf. Um, I, I've never gotten into it. It's too boring for me, but you know, more power to them. 
Uh, then there's the college towner. These people are a large mix of SJWs, moderate liberals, professors that shouldn't be talking politics in an algebra class, etc. Basically the type of college kids any college town in any state, except they have quite a lot of different colleges to choose from, which attributes to a large number of these people. And so, yeah, I mean, yeah, you're college liberals, so they're kind of everywhere. Um, and you kind of maybe see a bit of a backlash to the more conservative policies in the state. It is a, more of a conservative state overall, going back to, you know, the elderly Florida people. Um, they tend to kind of swing conservative. So um, you do see a lot of a back, like backlash to that in the colleges. And then uh, the front page news. And this is like your real Florida. This is where Florida man, the idea comes from. These are the ones you talk about on the subreddit, be they crazed prophets of the apocalypse or just simple meth addicts. They always figure out new ways of surprising us and make it to where if you say you're from Florida to any other state, they're like, oh, so you must be surrounded by crocodiles and crazy people. Actually, no, let me correct that. We're surrounded by alligators and crazy people. Do not confuse them. Do not confuse them. They are different animals. Um... <laughs> So, but yes, again, everything you hear from Florida is true. And, uh, that's the straight dope. So, <laughs> so we are getting close to kind of wrapping things up. I kind of want to make this one short and sweet since it's been a while. And, you know, you don't need to listen to me bitching for an hour. Okay, I'm trying to do a more positive show here. I'm trying to, you know, give you the good feels. So... While there are a lot of crazy Florida men and crazy Florida women and just crazy Florida people in general, there are also some really cool people out there. And that brings us to the next segment, which is Sassy Bun for this podcast. So a Sassy Bun, as you may know by now, is just a badass person in history or currently living to i mean the sassy bun is just a badass person who does badass things uh they were known for being some kind of pi pioneer of whether it was art music just doing cool shit with their life just a badass person so we're gonna go back to the 1800s and this is an article on atlas obscura this is an article by Lauren Young, and I don't want to give it away. I'm just going to read the subtitle. James Barry's true identity was a military secret for nearly a century. In 1826, in a southern suburb of Cape Town, South Africa, a frail-looking doctor with red hair prepped his instruments for a highly dangerous procedure, a cesarean operation. Once Dr. James Barry, a Royal British Army surgeon who was no taller than five feet, had assessed the severity of the patient's contractions, he saw there was no other choice. The newborn needed to be removed surgically. Barry had read only three cases where both the mother and child survived. None of them were performed in the British Empire. But Barry had a unique perspective to most doctors at the time. And this is from Michael Dupreez and Jeremy Dronfield. They write... Aside from his expertise in midwifery, he had a secret advantage. There was not another practicing physician or surgeon in the world in the 19th century who knew from personal experience what it was like to bear a child. Dun-dun-dun. <laughs> Sorry about that. 
Barry became the first doctor in the British Empire to perform a successful cesarean operation. It was one of many major medical contributions the Irish surgeon accomplished for the British military, from enforcing stricter standards of hygiene, improving the diet of sick patients, to popularizing a plant-based treatment for syphilis and gonorrhea. Barry served around the globe, eventually earning the title of Inspector General, the second most senior medical position in the British Army. But despite these achievements, Barry's reputation was kept a secret for nearly a hundred years. The military locked away the doctor's records after finding out Britain's Inspector General was born a woman. And this is amazing. James Barry was actually a woman. She pioneered all of these crazy awesome medical breakthroughs that moved science and medicine forward so far earned the second highest title that one can hold, traveled all around the world to doing medicine. Basically, she had to disguise her identity for her entire life because they did not allow women in medical school back in the 1800s. Shocking, I know, but <laughs> that's the story. Uh, and, he and here's her story, actually. Around the age of 20, Margaret Ann Buckley became James Barry, a hot-tempered ladies' man, donning three-inch-heeled shoes, a plumed hat, and a sword. In 1809, she decided to embody a smooth-faced young man in order to attend the men's-only University of Edinburgh and practice medicine, a guise that would last for 56 years. It wasn't until Barry's death in 1865 that the doctor's secret was finally discovered. Bulkley's masquerade was one of the longest deceptions of gender identity ever recorded, Dupree's writes in the Journal of the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. Dr. Barry is remembered for the sensational fact rather than for the real contributions that she made to improve the health and lot of the British soldier as well as civilians. Born in 1789 in Merchant's Quay, Cork, Ireland, to a grocer father, Margaret Ann Bulkley was a sociable and outgoing child. As a young girl, she once wrote of her desire for a sword and a pair of colors, which was a military uniform. Bulkley had an older brother, John, whose fecklessness and selfishness brought the family in debt, writes Dupree's in the South African Medical Journal. John received most of the family's money to fund his education and an apprenticeship at an attorney's office in Dublin. In 1803, he became infatuated with an upper-class woman and spent $1,500 of the family's savings on the marriage settlement. The Bulkley family spiraled into bankruptcy, and Margaret's father was sent to prison when she was 14, leaving the family without a source of income. Thanks a lot, John. All right. <laughs> it goes on. Her mother sought the help of her older brother in London, the famed Irish artist James Barry. The artist had a difficult personality, however, and was not welcoming to his sister's family when they arrived in London. Yet Barry introduced Margaret to his elite circle of friends, some of whom offered her teaching and mentorship. Margaret did not have the social standing to marry well, but her family hoped she could study to become a teacher or a governess. How about doctor? What, what? All right, so she she's trying to become a doctor. She's trying to use the connections. She can. Well, okay, they thought she was going to be a teacher or governess, and she was like, man, fuck that. I'm going to be a doctor instead. And this is kind of when she met um, she met Francisco Miranda, who was a Venezuelan general and revolutionary, and she was impressed by Bulkley's intelligence. He was the first friend of Barry's to encourage Bulkley to take on the persona of a man to enter the male-dominated field of medicine. 
After Margaret graduated from medical school, he reasoned Bulkley could shed this disguise and practice freely as a woman doctor in Venezuela. Get this, apparently you could practice as a woman doctor, you know, it's <laughs> or just a doctor who happened to be a woman in Venezuela in the 1800s, but not in Britain. And uh, Miranda proposed that Bulkley use her medical skills in his revolutionary efforts in Caracas, Venezuela. In the early 19th century, only men were admitted to the medical schools in Britain, and the discovery of sex of the young medical student would have ruined any chance of success. In 1806, her uncle James Barry passed away and left his fortune to the family. In turn, Bulkley assumed Barry's name and used the money to finance three years of medical studies at the University of Edinburgh, beginning in December 1809. So she basically kicked ass at school, where she was using the name James Barry now. She pursued a diverse load of coursework, ranging from anatomy and surgery, botany, and midwifery. The number of subjects Barry studied was only succeeded was only the number of subjects Barry studied was only exceeded by one army medical officer and matched by one other student in his cohort of over forty five doctors. Wrote Dupree's. So. She not only was like, hey, I'm going to be a doctor. She's like, I'm going to study anatomy, surgery, botany, midwifery. I'm going to study it all. Like, she was not going to be outdone by anyone. So sassy. In 1812, Barry was nearly exposed on the cusp of graduating. Edinburgh authorities tried to bar Barry from taking the four-stage final exams, claiming that the student looked underage, but likely suspecting more. Yet at the time, it was not unusual to see 16-year-olds at medical schools, and the ban was not enforced. After completing a thesis on the femoral hernia, primarily a female condition, Barry became the first woman to graduate from a medical school in Britain. And so she ended up not going to Venezuela. The revolution was thwarted, and Miranda was imprisoned by the Spanish, so that sucked for him. Um... But she, so what she did, instead of coming out as a woman, she just decided to be Dr. Barry. And she hid the, the identity until she died. She had a very close relationship with Lord Buchan, who was a nobleman who was a friend and supporter of her late uncle. And he may have even helped her get around the mandatory physical exams. Um, they had a, a close friendship. And I, I love this part. This is one of my favorite parts. People noted Barry's unusual lifestyle. The medical inspector was a vegetarian, kept a goat nearby to drink its milk, carried a small dog named Psyche, and was almost always seen with a trusted servant, Danzer, who would stay by Barry's side for 50 years. Each morning, Danzer laid out six small towels for Barry to wrap and conceal his curves and broaden his shoulders. The doctor wore high-heeled boots and the longest sword and spurs he could obtain, Surgeon Edward Bradford wrote when he met Barry in Jamaica in 1834. Barry's flirtations with women also threw off suspicion. Many women fell for Barry's sweet, beardless face, a latter-day Orpheus, according to Dupree's in Dronefield. Women stated how Barry was, quote, a perfect dancer who won his way to many a heart. While comrades often saw the doctor attached to the finest and best-looking woman in the room. <laughs> Good for her. <laughs> I think that's awesome. 
Barry, who cursed constantly and had a fastidious temperament, often butted heads with other doctors when their treatments conflicted, and even fought a couple duels with rival officers. Such a badass, am I right? Oh my god. The hot-headed doctor even got into a tussle with the medical reformer and nurse Florence Nightingale, who wrote, quote, He behaved like a brute and was, quote, the most hardened creature I ever met throughout the army. I mean, I guess you gotta be pretty tough, you know, to throw, if you're wanting to throw people off. But also, I mean, how much of this was Barry feeling like they had to be this tough guy persona versus she just sounded like a tough person. She faced a lot of adversity in her life and, you know, had to fight, a, you know, for a lot to get where she got. So, I mean, she's probably just, you know, a tough, a tough lady. So, and it was kind of rumored that uh, maybe Barry had uh, this kind of, this possible rela relationship with Cape Town's governor, Lord Charles. You know, Barry ended up caring for him up until his death and clashed with the prestigious physician who was also caring for him. Uh, people spread rumors that the governor and doctor went, were in an intimate relationship, but the scandal was never proven. And people also believe that Lord Charles knew Barry's true identity, um, and some claim he may have loved the doctor. So, some, some more, not only with the gender bending, but the sexuality bending... James Barry slash Margaret Bulkley was definitely a unique character and just super, super sharp. She even wrote in a diary that Lord Charles was my more than father, my almost only friend. And eventually she fell ill in Canada and was taken back to London where she died most likely of dysentery or cholera. Um, oof. Not good. So, but her medical career lasted 46 years with the celebrated doctor assisting the wounded in the Peninsular War and a military hospital in Plymouth and treating French prisoners from Waterloo in addition to stints in South Africa and Canada. And it was her final wish to remain in her original clothing and be buried immediately. However, Barry's servant, Sophia Bishop, examined her boss's body and discovered that the doctor was, quote, a perfect female with stretch marks indicating the birth of a child. So she even gave birth at one point and hid that she gave birth at some point when she was either studying for medicine or something. And basically she, she had a doctor when she was in Ireland named Juliana Bulkley. And Juliana never knew that her mother was an accomplished army doctor. So it's assumed that the relatives, or some of her relatives raised this child um, while Bulkley slash Barry pursued medicine. And unfortunately, military officials soon found out of Barry's great disguise and that they had unknowingly employed a woman for nearly half a century. Oh, how terrible! Ashamed of these revelations, top officials in the army tried to cover it up, imposing a hundred-year embargo on all documentation concerning the fraudulent inspector general. So get this, imposing a hundred-year embargo, they were so, get this, they were so fucked up about her being a woman that they decided to put an embargo on all of her documentation. So, like, she moved medicine and science forward 
way far and then they were like oh no we can't we can't do you know we can't look at any of this research it was from a woman so so like how far back did this set britain as far as medicine goes because they were so spooked about someone who who didn't have the gender identity that they thought they did like how fucked up is that it's just incredible to me i mean yeah obviously this was the 1800s but i mean can you be more anti-scientific and just, just sexist? <sighs> messed up. Slowly messed up. And, you know, they she'd already been given a military funeral, but they tried to go back on that. They uh, only put a plain sandstone marker on the grave. Uh, you know, they didn't even do an obituary, even though she was a really well-known doctor. And they hid it from the contemporary public. Even though there were news stories, novels, and a play that sensationalized Barry's life and legacy. Um, but the military kept trying to obscure... They kept trying to obscure this information. And eventually, the, Mar Margaret Ann Bulkley's and Dr. James Barry's existence disappeared. This is just nuts to me. So, like, they covered it up. And this, this went on for, like, a hundred years. But eventually it was discovered, um, you know, and, and she was revealed for the badass that she actually was. Um, and this is kind of interesting. Um, this is kind of like a small side note. The globetrotting doctor worked to advance the field of medicine half a century before Elizabeth Garrett became the first known female to qualify as a doctor in Britain in 1865, the same year Barry died. So the same year, this is after 56 years of practicing medicine, um, Barry passes away, and fine, like by the time she dies, women are finally allowed to qualify as doctors. People have come a long way. This is amazing. And I did find another, was it? They're actually, so they're actually making a movie about this. Um, so there's like a biopic that's going to be made and supposedly Rachel Weisz, the actress, will be playing Bulkley and Dr. Barry in a future biopic. So that's cool. I, I hope that this actually gets made because uh, I would really love to see this. Um, this was from an article back in December. It's a little dated, but uh, they're talking about it being made. And that's super badass. Um, and this article that I came across, it's actually in The Guardian. There were some questions. So I, I was saying the headline, if you're wondering for the Atlas Obscura article, was actually the first female doctor in Britain spent 56 years disguised as a man. If you're looking for the article on atlasobscura.com. The Guardian article, though, at the very end, um, kind of asked the question about whether Barry may have been intersex um, or like, or maybe if, if she identified as gender fluid. I'm not really sure. Um, you know, the first article kind of said that she disguised herself as a man um, for professional reasons, but she obviously was very fluid with her sexuality. I mean, it sounded like she had definitely female lovers, possibly male lovers. So just a super fascinating person in history, James Barry slash Margaret Bulkley, a pioneering doctor who brought so many medical advancements and 
had to do it because Britain just couldn't handle a woman doing things better than apparently a lot of the male doctors were doing. So there's your sassy bun. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, this is fun. You know, I'll be doing more consistent ones. I, I always say that I'm trying to do more consistent ones. And, um, you know, if you want to give me any weird news, if you want to send me anything, send it over to iconasass at gmail.com. Definitely check me out. I was on uh, Brian's podcast. You can find them. Um, if you just search Sovereign Tech, that's S-O-V-R-Y-N Tech. Um, look them up on Patreon and SoundCloud. And I also appear on the Lulberts, which is a really fun, just such a, I, I love being on that show. Uh, and that's Jim Jesus's project. And he always has a, just a bunch of crazy hosts. It's kind of a spinoff from Freedom Fiends, if you're familiar with that. So I also randomly appear on the Lulberts. So check them out too. That's L-O-L-B-E-R-T-S. And yeah, I will be catching you next time.